Good morning, Your Excellencies, Mr. Ambassador, thank you for coming, members of the diplomatic uh, and government communities, including our U.S. Trade Representative's Office, distinguished speakers and guests, to the American business representatives uh, from the um, Middle East Council of American Chambers of Commerce, uh, who are in attendance this morning from the six GCC countries. Of course, that's Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, as part of your annual Congressional Thornock Program. Today's co-sponsors, of course, MECAC, the Middle East Council on American Chambers of Commerce, the U.S. Chambers of Commerce, Wilkie Farr and Gallagher, the U.S. GCC Corporate Cooperation Committee, the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations, our distinguished board members in the audience, Welcome and thank you for attending this morning's briefing event. To Richard at the international law firm of Wilkie, Farr and Gallagher, and today's host, a special shout out of renewed appreciation to you, Rick, uh, for the almost, as I like to say, the double-digit hosting of these important public briefing events at such a terrific and convenient location right here on K Street. I know there are some folders about Wilkie, Farr and Gallagher, so free, feel free to take them with you. There are the purple folders on your chairs along with these legal pads. Um, today's event, titled Fostering USGCC Trade, Economic Cooperation, and Investment Opportunities, could not be timed more timely and the moment more propitious. With over 60,000, again, 60,000 American expats working and living in the six GCC countries that they call home, American and GCC prosperity, economies, people, and relations only stand to benefit. To put this 60,000 number into perspective, I just wanted you to know Japan has 60,000 American expat, expats and China only 43,000. So this, importance, this region is extremely important. Thanks to the statistical work compiled by Professor Carl Petrick, I don't know, Professor, if you're in the audience or not, an economist from Western New England University, uh, he's recently studied and analyzed 2015 trade and export data from the U.S. government's International Trade Administration. So we can relay the following numbers and trends related to U.S. trade and exports to the GCC states. First, while exports worldwide seem to dip, the exception, again, the exception was the GCC countries. Led by the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, we saw an increase of 4 to 5% for 2015. Qatar, Oman, Bahrain, and Kuwait remain unchanged. Lastly, you may think this is some sort of a typographical error, but 79%, again, 79% of UX, U.S. exported goods to the entire Arab world were to the six GCC countries in 2015. Let me submit to you this region is extremely important to the health, prosperity, and livelihoods of Americans, Arabs, companies' interests, and our mutual way of life. As is customary at these briefing events, questions should be written on note cards, collected by the National Council staff. Just raise your hand when you have a question, and submit it to our moderator and questionnaire extraordinaire, our President and CEO, Dr. John Duke Anthony. Um, allow me now, at this point, to turn the program over to Richard, uh, today's host, from Wilkie Farr Gallagher. After uh, Richard, uh, Dr. Anthony will provide overview, background, context uh, to today's briefing. Richard. Thank you, Pat. Uh, good morning and welcome. Um, 
And a special welcome to uh, our guests from the National Council of U.S. Air Relations. Uh, it's always a pleasure for me to welcome uh, Dr. Anthony and the National Council to uh, Wilkie Farr and Gallagher. Uh, between Dr. Anthony's erudition and his fascinating guest speakers, um, many of whom are here, all of whom are here today, um, I always come away from these events knowing more about the relations between the United States and the uh, Arab states in the Gulf than when I came in. And so, um, if I may, I'd like to make, uh, extend a special welcome uh, to Mr. Roosevelt um, and to note his <coughs> connection, somewhat attenuated, uh, with uh, my firm, Wilkie Farr Gallagher. Uh, Mr. Roosevelt's grandfather, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, hadn't defeated Wendell Wilkie in 1940. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> my firm might still be named Miller, Boston, Owen, and Gallagher. So, uh, thank you, and thank you to your grandfather for uh, allowing us to have Wendell Wilkie as a partner of the firm, albeit for a short period of time. Well, we're yeah. just thankful that he ran instead of Taps, so thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, so with that, uh, I'm going to turn the podium over to uh, Dr. Anthony, uh, the uh, founder and the chairman of the National Council of uh, U.S. Air Relations and a great friend of Wilkie Farr Gallagher and me, Dr. Anthony. Thank you, Richard. Uh, thank you, uh, Patrick. And uh, welcome to uh, members of the National Council's uh, Board of Directors, Elizabeth Poston here. Uh, John Patch in the back. She's in the front row. He's in the back row. They're bookends, I guess. And then uh, Rhonda uh, Fafi Houdon as well. And Anafa Al-Jaber, who is a National Council Distinguished International Affairs Fellow. She has an enormous uh, responsibility. And you've already heard about uh, Del Roosevelt. Christopher Johnson, congratulations to Christopher. If I understand correctly, that you're the recently less than 24 hours old uh, new chairman of uh, MICAS. And Rhonda Fatli Houdon is more than a member of that board. She was the special advisor uh, for international energy affairs to uh, Spencer Abraham when he was the Secretary of uh, Energy there. Mr. Chalski from the Chamber of Commerce, who has a broad mandate uh, dealing with uh, all of the Middle East and, and other sub-regions as well. And Mike Jones, uh, who is the Washington representative of MECAS and uh, formerly was the director for all uh, international activities and relations and programs and projects, events and activities for the uh, Republican Party or Americans uh, rather abroad, uh, which played a pivotal role in the absentee ballots and very close uh, presidential uh, elections. So we've got quite a team here, and um, I, I would refer to what uh, we're about to experience as a nice cerebral massage uh, there. And I wanted to thank the ambassador of the League of Arab States who's here, all 22 Arab countries. Would you maybe stand, Mr. Ambassador? 
met his son. We have met Christopher Johnson's son. Uh, Nate Christopher Johnson's son was an intern uh, at the National Council last summer. And I'd like to welcome uh, Ambassador Walt Cutler as well, if you might stand. Walt Cutler uh, has the distinction of having been ambassador to Saudi Arabia twice. Um, and this was an unusual set of circumstances, but um, the United States could have sent any of its uh, living former ambassadors to Saudi Arabia, um, but they sent uh, Ambassador Cutler. And this was during the second half of the long, extenuated, uh, very dangerous Iran-Iraq war. Uh, so we're, we're privileged to have him as well. And, uh, with uh, Delano Roosevelt, uh, of course, it was his grandfather who met on Valentine's Day. And what a nice uh, symbol embedded in the day that they met, uh, February 14th, 1945. And that was just a month before the League of Arab States opened its doors. And it is the oldest uh, regional organization dedicated to the resolution of conflicts and disputes uh, through uh, peaceful methods and diplomacy. Its obituary has been written many times, uh, but it has always come through at a crucial strategic moment in history uh, when a regional organization was badly needed, not just by the United States, but the, the rest of the world as well. So he has an extraordinary job uh, with trying to represent 22. If you imagine yourself being the head of 22 different organizations, for each noun and verb that come out of your mouth, uh, there are bound to be two or three that object there because uh, they see matters uh, differently. So he's uh, having to master the art of consultation and consensus. And these are the bedrock political tenets uh, to how things get done. Uh, and policy-making and decision-making in the Arab world. Uh, to just share with you a frame of reference that I, I, I doubt most, uh, or uh, if any of you have read or heard, uh, King Fahad, uh, about 15 years ago before uh, he passed Allah Yehrimu, um, was asked by an inquiring journalist, help me understand how you really make decisions. And he said, I don't. He said, excuse me? Um, I, I asked, uh, how do you really make decisions? And he said, I don't. And he said, are you, are you kidding me? He said, no, I'm not. I, I, I'll amend that I have made one decision. And that was in August of uh, 1990. Uh, when the dust uh, was far from settled when Iraq invaded Kuwait and we sent a mission to Saudi Arabia with aerial reconnaissance photographs uh, of Iraq having gone beyond the Kuwait-Saudi Arabian border not once in a place but half a dozen times there uh, indicating that its intent was not just Kuwait but to push the envelope and see what it could get away with. Um, there was not unanimity among the top leaders of Saudi Arabia's decision-making establishment. And he said, on that occasion, I did make 
a decision to invite uh, American armed forces in because I couldn't see Iraq being dislodged from Kuwait in any other way. But for all the other occasions, I am no more and no less than the head of the press conference. I announce, I declare what has been decided in the consultative consensual manner. Uh, and this is as instructive as anything I can imagine of a head of state sharing how decision-making is really made in his country and his structure of governance and system of political dynamics. I don't think any other country could say something quite like that and mean it and back it up uh, with the facts. Now, uh, the fact that these uh, women and men are here representing the private sector and uh, the uh, six or more uh, GCC country AMCHAMs, because they're a couple in um, the UAE, one in Abu Dhabi and one in Dubai as well, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so they're not just the six. Um, now as then, uh, these Americans are living in an area that most Americans uh, flippantly refer to, conjure up in their minds as gas stations, not as countries, uh, who conjure up and flippantly refer to these countries uh, substantively as objects. Objects to be manipulated, to be controlled, to be influenced, or increasingly, if you take at face value the rhetoric of some of the uh, candidates for the Republican presidential nomination there, uh, that these are to be avoided, or we should distance ourselves from Arabs and Muslims and be cautious and careful in the extreme in terms of who we let in and how many we let in and why we let in people of Arab and Islamic roots and background and foreground as well. Uh, but the truth of it is, yes, we're all objects in friendships and partnerships and relationships uh, with others. Uh, but in this case, uh, our partners are also actors, and more actors than they are objects, and actors <coughs> with their own legitimate needs, their legitimate concerns, their legitimate interests, and their legitimate foreign policy objectives there. And this is, of course, where the friction comes and the relationship between our two peoples, uh, because though we say we uh, regret and resent and will not allow foreign intrusion and interference in America's domestic political affairs. And we imply that there's reciprocity and that we will not do the same. We do the same. Uh, and this is part of the roots of anti-Americanism in the region. And it's part because of the failure to live up to the golden rule of do not do unto others that which you would not do have done to yourselves. And it's as basic as that. Uh, these are placed adjacent to one another, six countries, and I would challenge anyone to come up with a group of another six countries as a sub-region 
anywhere in the world that uh, despite their differences and tensions and a fair amount of mutual jealousies and suspicions uh, of the same language, the same broad culture, the same historical background that have been as secure and stable and prosperous as these six. Secure, stable, and prosperous. The three go hand in hand, but in the order in which I mentioned them. Without security, you really have nothing, and you can have nothing, and you're probably having to pack the eat uh, just in order to get through a given day. But these six, despite uh, Americans thinking the whole region is going to hell, and if anyone here obtained a scholarship or a free round-trip ticket to the region this morning, their friends, their relatives, their neighbors, their partners and colleagues would say, are you out of your mind? Uh, you, you'll, you'll be killed. Uh, you'll be kidnapped. Uh, you'll become a hostage. Uh, and people are not making this up. We take people to the region all the time, and they tell us, uh, what happened uh, when they heard that they could go and would go. And so there's an enormous amount of ignorance and coupled to it, because of who and what we are, there's a fair amount of arrogance as well. And this too is part of the roots of anti-Americanism in the region. But if we stand back and try to be clinical, detached, and objective for a moment, uh, all of us from the West at least, and can look at this region and realize that this is the, the birthplace of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, the world's three monotheistic uh, faiths, and the third one, the fastest growing uh, faith in, in the world in comparison to competition uh, with all the others. It is the crucible of culture and civilization as we in the West know it live it, appreciate it. It is the waste of an hourglass between Europe and Asia and Africa. No other subregion is. And it is at the end of the day seemingly the traffic jam of the devout uh, being the epicenter of prayer and pilgrimage of faith and spiritual devotion but fully a quarter of humanity. And we will begin first with Nahla Al-Jubair and proceed along the panel here uh, to have information which will help all of us. None of us will leave here untransformed. But we will also obtain insight from that information. And that too will not be enough. But we will, from both of those, obtain knowledge. And yet knowledge alone is not enough. But it's the key to understanding. And understanding is the key to wisdom. We don't have the last one, but by the end of this morning, we'll have the first four. First not, Um, head for the Center for Career Development. It's part of the uh, Saudi Arabian Cultural Mission. 
Um, we are based out of Fairfax, and we're part of the Ministry of Education. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, or you probably have read about it, we have all, uh, a lot of students studying in the United States on scholarships. Currently, we have um, approximately 90,000 students studying here, of which about um, 65,000 or so are uh, full, uh, they have full scholarships. And given that huge number, um, the um, cultural mission decided to create the Center for Career Development. And the purpose of the center was to assist Saudi students to come here for the education to also gain some practical experience through internships and uh, post-graduation training. But at the same time, to meet the needs of companies who are, uh, who are either working, to, uh, have uh, offices in Saudi Arabia or planning to open offices in Saudi Arabia. Um, and they were facing uh, a shortage of US educated um, students, so they um, approached us, or the, the embassy and the cultural mission, um, uh, seeking um, US educated students to train for jobs in Saudi Arabia. So uh, when we did the center, we uh, decided to do it so that we provide a platform for these two uh, sections to uh, connect. Now, uh, given having said that, what is it, I mean, what are the benefits of actually um, taking on Saudi students? Um, there are many of those benefits um, <clears throat> that um, you can gain from hiring Saudi students or training them is that um, a lot of the Saudi students know um, the American system, they know how uh, the Saudi system works, and they can help you get to um, maneuver through the system. Um, you get a chance to deal, uh, learn how, besides how to uh, service, you get to get a chance to try them out here if you want to have them work in Saudi Arabia with you. Um, the other things that um, they um, help you um, in, besides maneuvering and everything, they, which I think is one of the most important things, are they help you understand the Saudi culture. A lot of the people don't know who we are, what we are, except for what they read in the newspapers or the magazines. So what we do is our students, sorry, our students help you learn who we are, how we think, how we deal, so that when you decide to go to Saudi Arabia, you have an idea of what we're like, so that you don't face problems that are culturally based. A lot of um, issues that we notice uh, companies face is that they don't know who we are, and so they. Um, judge everything from their own viewpoint so that um, they make errors, cultural errors, that can be very costly. So this is, um, I think, some of the benefits you would gain from working with us and hiring Saudi students. Also, lately, um, in the last several years, there's been a push for Saudiization. So we can help you with uh, meeting that need by providing you with students that are educated here, that know how American system works, and that you can take advantage to help you meet your staffing needs and at the same time meet your um, um, standardization uh, requirements. Um, so this is briefly what we do. We help, student, we help companies find um, Saudi talent. We help you navigate the system through our students and to, to understand our culture. The next question that a lot of people ask is how do we get to interact with Saudis? How do we get to those Saudi students, those 90,000 plus students that are studying in the United States with every possible majors? Um, uh, one third of our, our uh, we have a huge, for example, a huge population of students who are studying business. Over 20,000 students are studying business. We have about 20,000 people who are studying engineering, engineering industries. 
we have 10,000 ITs, we have nearly 10,000 students in the health uh, fields. So we can help you reach through uh, to those through the services that we provide. And I um, pass on a flyer that um, was on your seat that describes the services that we provide to help you gain uh, access to our students. Um, these include um, uh, advertisers on our websites, social media, uh, we have a job board, um, we do webinars. A lot of the services that we provide are free. We encourage you to use them because our goal is to help you get to our student population. Um, again, I, I can't stress enough, this is very, it's, it's practically uh, free. The only thing that we charge is if you decide to do a webinar where you can introduce your company to our students and that's only the technical cost. Other than that, uh, it, it costs you nothing. This year, we didn't have—we uh, have not done a um, job fair um, because we've gone uh, through a lot of changes in the Ministry of Education. But uh, inshallah, next year we'll have a job fair. Uh, that's another thing that we encourage you to take advantage of getting to our students. Um, uh, so, this is in a nutshell what we have to offer. There's nothing for you to lose. I mean, you get. If you take on our students to train them here, um, you get a chance to see if that's somebody you want to continue the relationship for. If you decide you don't want to um, continue the relationship, you still have created a connection with the Saudi population that might benefit you down the road through um, their networking uh, abilities, through their abilities to help you navigate the system, the legal, the, the economic system in Saudi Arabia. And also, um, you never know, um, that person in the future might be in a position where they have signatory power. If you look at many of our um, ministers, um, CEOs, high-ranking uh, officials, whether it's in the government or in the private sector, they are um, educated abroad, a lot of them in the United States. So um, that's another way you can um, benefit from our students. Uh, um, again, uh, there are so many um, ways you can benefit from our students. Uh, especially given the large number of population, given the um, different um, areas of uh, um, fields that they're studying. So there's no excuse for coming um, uh, take on our students. Feel free to um, contact me if there are any questions. You have my contact information on the flyer that was on your chairs. Um, I'm willing to answer any questions you have um, to the best of my abilities. Um, if it's politically oriented, I do not answer those questions about my paycheck. Um, but um, the education of the students that are uh, in Washington or in the United States, by the way, we have them in all 50 states. We do have in Canada, in, sorry, in Alaska and in Hawaii. So um, I'll, I'll answer those uh, as best as I can. Thank you, Ms. Algebra. This information. This information is, is priceless. It's been a long time in coming, and uh, they're totally a uh, service oriented uh, to help you and build this private sector a component of our relationships. Yes, Adele Roosevelt. Um, John, can you hear me in the back? Do I? I don't. Thank you all very much, and, and also just to just. Uh, before I have a, share a few of my comments, I want to just comment on uh, on Nala's mission and the passion that she has. It's, that's and that's resulted in, in such a successful um, organization. Uh, uh, we, uh, my my day job is uh, I work uh, as a director of new business development for the Ali Reza family in Jeddah, 
and we have uh, nine business divisions and 47 companies. Uh, if you were to just yell one out, uh, yell a business area out, we probably are into it. We are, are now, we have our first three interns from the program, and uh, we are so thrilled uh, at the quality and level of these uh, two young men and one young lady that are working in our company. And it is the, and Nala had mentioned one comment here. She made a comment about what are the benefits. And the benefits, I would say, in order, in the, in the proper order, would be that, yes, the, in number two, would be, yes, the understanding of Saudi culture uh, and, and, and being able to understand uh, Western culture as they have lived it, they have worked it, they have created relationships here, uh, that is extremely beneficial to any American company who's looking to venture over into the Mideast or into Saudi Arabia. It will be priceless to you, it, you know, you, it, because it's it, 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 some of the more common uh, faux pas are, are going into a meeting and not understanding truly that it is about the relationship first. And you might be building a relationship for days before you start talking about business. And the poor folks that do come in from the West, not only American, but from the West period, that sit down and say, so listen, how much are we all going to make on this? Well, guess what? You pretty much just ended your, your, your career in, in Saudi Arabia. Um, so that would be a benefit of these young men and women uh, to American companies coming in, to American companies that are over there, existing, and to Saudi companies as well, it's a tremendous benefit having these young folks that have been educated here in the United States, that have interned here in the United States, and in a lot of times worked for U.S. companies, you're getting a, a Saudi individual that has, in, that has learned and embraced the concept of working at the speed of Western business. Because it is a cultural difference as to how companies operate within the Mideast and here in the West. And to have somebody like that with the, the combination of the, the, the three, the wins of understanding your, your, the, the local culture better than we ever can. Uh, I've been in Saudi now 10 years on a, on a 12 month handshake for a consulting deal and I've never left. Uh, and I'm just, I'm still a rookie after 10 years. And I'm just scratching the surface of understanding the culture uh, of Saudi Arabia and the region. So you have that. Second, you have someone who is extremely bright and, and, and wanting to work to make themselves better and their kingdom better. Uh, so it's a, it, it's a no-brainer for, for Nala's organization to be one of your stops as you're looking at doing business in Saudi Arabia. Uh, beyond that, we at the, uh, the Middle East Council of American Chambers of Commerce, uh, I'll, I can make this very short and very simple. Our mission is simple, and our concept is simple. Uh, as you all probably have heard the term AMCHAMS, and there are AMCHAMS, there are I believe 11 AMCHAM chapters throughout the GCC. And uh, the simple purpose of a U.S. AMCHAM chapter in the region is to listen carefully to the needs and concerns and issues of American companies 
and Americans, sometimes more important, about what's happening uh, in their lives. And then, so it's a place for them to go if you have any issues with respect to the ease or the difficulty of doing business or any issues, really. You, you can talk to your Amchan and your, your embassy. The problem was is that what does the Amchan then do with that information, quite simply? And then it, uh, the, it was very clear that the need was, there was a, an absolute need for an organization or a council to be created to listen to all of the chapters of the Anchan. And so the Middle East Council of American Chamber of Commerce is nothing more than a simple council that is created from one or two board members from every Anchan chapter in the region. And our job is to simply listen and, 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 and hear these concerns from American businesses and Americans in the region, and we boil down as a council these these issues. We then prioritize these issues, and then we come back here to Washington D.C. to speak to anyone who will listen uh, that is appropriate to listen on these issues. And we try and and, and get help, assistance, uh, the chamber, USTR, uh, Capitol Hill, and we do these door knocks now for over 20 years, John. Easily? Yeah. 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 So um, anyway, we have now uh, we've become a, 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 a pretty good, pretty well-recognized brand. And uh, people like to hear, uh, they like it when we come through their door on the hill. I think that we have maybe two or three minutes discussing our four or five issues. And then it's really, then the conversation turns quite quickly to, so tell me what's really going on. What's happening in Bahrain? Are the kids still burning tires? Uh, is, do you feel safe living there? What's happening in, in, in Kuwait? And, and, we, and they really want to know, because we are offering them a unique perspective from uh, simple uh, men and women doing business, living there with their families on the ground. And that certainly is a different, not to, to make any disparaging uh, comments about a State Department employee or an embassy employee, but we certainly have a different perspective as we're there with our families, we are trying to do business, we are trying to grow business, and we don't have any restrictions, any political restrictions that will, that will inhibit us from telling them how life really is. And so they're very curious to that. And to that end, because of the fact that we are made up completely of, of uh, men and women who are doing business and living, and thriving and loving living in the in the area, uh, I might ask just very quickly uh, for all of the members of the MECAC team just to stand up for one second, if you will. Starting, John's already standing up in the back. Dave Obermeyer. Thank you very much. Thanks for not being shot. There's a reason for this. Is because I I would hope to think that. Everyone in this room uh, has not come to just simply listen to us, but you want to try and get something out of this, and maybe part of that something other than just listening to people share ideas and concepts might be, how is it that my university can gain access over there and start taking advantage of this amazing growth uh, opportunity uh, that has been, that has existed, and it continues to exist, regardless of the price of oil, 
the the news from the Arabian Peninsula is good. Uh, uh, exports are up. Business is thriving. They are growing. The uh, the young prince, uh, the son of the king, has just announced a two trillion dollar initiative. So things are moving. So I'm hoping that there are folks in here that are saying, how can my health organization participate in this? My manufacturing. Uh, I make microphones. How can I sell microphones to all of these new hotels and facilities that are going up? The people that you just saw, and including myself, we are here and available for you to ask these questions because the hardest question to answer, it seems, for Americans and American business owners is, I understand that there's opportunity there. I get that. What is the roadmap in? Because it looks a little scary, and it's a little ominous. And, uh, it, you know, what does my family do during the day when I go to work in Saudi Arabia? Where do my kids go to school? Does my wife have friends? Does my husband have friends? All of these questions, it really boils down to quality of life questions. And we have the answers to those questions. We have the answers to who who do we, do we need a partner? Do we not need a partner? Who would be the right partner? And the most important question, who would be the wrong partner? And we've all been there long enough, and we don't have any, you know, we're not, uh, we have no qualms in telling you and sharing our experiences of, you know, maybe that individual or that organization's not quite right for your microphone business but we know who is, and we can make those introductions for you and help guide you through what is seemingly an impossible maze, And but when you have someone that can help you through it, it's not impossible, it's quite doable, and you will find that once you are there and you're making relationships, you realize the first thing about this culture is that if you simply do what you say that you will do, you will have allies, and friends and relationships that will last more than a lifetime. And so with that, uh, we are here for you for any further questions, and we'll, we'll take our cards and follow up, and because if you're anything like me, as soon as I walk out that door, I have 50 questions or things that I would have loved to have said in the meeting. So please take our cards and follow up with us, and if we don't know the answer or where to direct you, we will find someone who can. And uh, thank you all for coming. And uh, God bless you all, and God bless America. Be sure to write uh, your questions. I have uh, about eight of them here already. Um, uh, Chris Johnson. I'm a lawyer in private practice. I'm recently elected chairman of BCAC and uh, very committed to the um, promotion of the concept of great opportunity for American business in the Middle East. I think. Uh, more so now than ever, and I think I'll pick up on Dell's um, issue um, uh, about the uh, insights that we have from living and working in the region that could be relevant to helping people outside who are curious, who are confused by the conflicting reports that you see in the press about what's really happening. Uh, to begin with, there's no doubt that we're in a time of, uh, I'd say, crisis and transition, that um, the drop in oil prices from 110 plus, I think 147 at the peak, to 22 at the trough, and now somewhere near 40, that this has been hugely disruptive and hugely traumatic for the leadership in Saudi Arabia throughout the Gulf, among all oil exporting countries. And um, 
This has been coincidental with a change in political leadership. We had a new king as of a year ago. Uh, coincidental with um, uh, the um, uh, economic crisis that comes from the $120 billion uh, budget deficits that have to be addressed. And um, uh, that's the bad news. And I think the good news is that um, um, it seems that we have leadership, at least in Saudi Arabia, and I think beyond, that's rising to the occasion and that really is producing um, plans and thinking and ideas that are proportional to the level of the challenge and that are very encouraging in terms of American and Western interests. And um, we have an economic transformation plan that the King has been talking about. He's been getting interviews to Bloomberg and to others that have been very um, exciting, I would say, and uh, very um, consistent with our idea of how a free market economy should work. Um, uh, there's a plan to consolidate um, the sovereign wealth, which is uh, very high. I think uh, perhaps 700 billion in liquid assets alone. Not to mention the investments in Aramco and Savic and the other publicly owned companies. And if you put that all together, it's you know several trillion dollars uh, in assets. Um, uh, the Deputy Crown Prince has uh, been wise in seeking input from advisors, including McKinsey's, about what is the prudent play in terms of the marshalling and the management of these assets. And um, there is a general plan that has been um, rolled out gradually. And the plan is to consolidate these assets under the Public Investment Fund, which will become the uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund of Saudi Arabia, and to rationalize the apportionment and the returns to maximize the benefit for the economy and the people of Saudi Arabia. And so there has been a roadshow of senior PIF uh, representatives who have met with Henry Kravitz and Jamie Dimon and their uh, peers in New York and elsewhere. And basically, the plan is to take the existing allocation, which is uh, essentially 95% of the sovereign wealth is domestically um, located. It's in Aramco, it's in the, um, uh, the big publicly owned companies. And only 5% is overseas, and the return from that 5% overseas has been substantially higher than the return from the domestic assets, which in some cases have been a drain because of subsidies, because of pricing arrangements for power, for water, and so forth, and to equalize them at 50-50. And so what that would mean uh, would be a much higher share of the Saudi wealth would be invested at returns that they're now getting of 7 or 8% or more. Uh, so it would be a very responsible uh, approach towards the, um, the, the sovereign wealth of Saudi Arabia. But it would also require on the domestic side mobilizing uh, foreign and domestic <coughs> capital to replace the government share in these big um, uh, public entities. And so it would be something similar to what Margaret Thatcher did in England or what Ireland uh, did at one stage. It would be a privatization and deregulation of the economy. And uh, so, and this is very serious. And the Crown Prince has said within a month you're going to see specific announcements. And I know from my friends in the Modulus El Shura and elsewhere within the government that there are committees that are meeting every day and they're working like uh, 12 or 14 hours a day. Um, for example, um, um, in the healthcare sector. The plan is to uh, change the uh, role of the Ministry of Health from being an operator to being a regulator and to privatize the hospitals. And, uh, um, and this 
provides opportunities for uh, companies like KKR and uh, Citibank and the private equity funds that are looking for opportunities in Saudi Arabia to come in and provide some international know-how. And so I see that um, uh, Saudi Arabia is taking lemons and turning it into lemonade. And in fact, what I'm hearing from many of my Saudi friends is, you know, thank God for the low oil prices, which is forcing us to rationalize our economy. And God forbid that the prices go back where they were and that we go back to our bad old ways. And so in many ways, this is a blessing in disguise. And so what I see is a fundamental renegotiation of the social contract between the government and the people, and one that will empower the people, that will provide opportunities, that will um, uh, compel companies that have been monopolistic to be competitive and to be service-oriented. Um, I think the, you know, uh, the Saudi people are ready to work. I have um, 30 people who work for me, half of them are Saudis, and they're good workers. They're motivated. They are eager to um, aspire to become competitive with their peers in Wilkie Farr and other great firms in the commercial centers of the world. And uh, uh, so uh, the people who tell you that the Saudis don't like the work, that uh, government employees are uh, lethargic and unreliable, well, frankly, in the private sector, that's not been my experience. And I, am, I welcome the initiative. I think it's extremely far-sighted for Saudi Arabia to send its students to the U.S. I think these people are going to be competitive in any market. And uh, I um, have been involved in a program, for example, in partnership with the um, Imam University and their Western Studies Institute to welcome the female law graduates from institutions in the U.S. and elsewhere. And we provide an orientation program to train them and give them a one-year program to uh, uh, have a practical orientation towards the practice of law. And then we try to place them in law firms. And I have three Saudi female attorneys working for me, and they are great. Um, so um, uh, if anyone tells you that Saudis are lazy and, and don't work, I'm here to tell you that that's absolutely wrong. Uh, and um, uh, so there's a great work ethic. Um, and um, if you look at the um, international posture, you know, Saudi Arabia, the king visited Obama back in September, and he said he wanted a strategic partnership. And, um, you know, I think they've always had a strategic partnership since Dell's grandfather met with King Abdulaziz on the Quincy. Uh, but the fact that this is the keystone of their international outreach, um, uh, I think this needs to be um, uh, this needs to be uh, welcomed with uh, uh, you know with open arms, and I think we need to be all over it. And I met yesterday with people at State Department and at the U.S. Trade Representative's office, and uh, they are working very hard to develop an agenda on how we would cooperate at the political and economic level um, to put meat on the bones in terms of a real strategic partnership in which we help each other and, um, and seize the moment. Um, and um, so uh, my message to American business is that the... Uh, uh, climate has never been more conducive, and the opportunities have never been, been better for uh, significant investments, and um, that um, there's a huge importance to the commercial relationship that transcends the benefits to the U.S. economy, and it derives from the Walter Russell Meade theory of the sharp, the sweet, and the sticky. That you can, the sharp is the military that can be uh, sometimes a two-edged sword and can be counterproductive and has all kinds of negative um, unintended consequences that can be terrible. Uh, the Swede is the cultural, and they do love American music and American movies, but it's a mile wide and an inch deep, and it doesn't really solve any 
practical problems, but the sticky is the commercial. That's people like Dell and myself and others who are living and working in the region, forming partnerships and friendships and alliances with our counterparts, and who really influence each other, and who really build um, alliances of common interest that have some traction and some staying power, and that um, uh, meld the kind of, uh, of, of, of strategic partnership at the grassroots level that translates into commitments and, um, and shared interests that uh, make for peaceful and positive and cooperative relationships. And so um, uh, as an element of economic diplomacy and statecraft, I think that the opportunity uh, has never been better um, and the receptivity in the region of the GCC has never been stronger, and that the relationship really is one that um, uh, has the potential to solve uh, many problems and avert some bad things happening that uh, make this region so uh, troubling and so problematic in the world stage. So, uh, you know, I, I'm here with good news despite the uh, challenges. I think that the overall prognosis for the relationship and for the health and prosperity of the region is good, and that's the message that we bring to Washington. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Chris. Next, uh, Rhonda. Thank you, Dr. Anthony. And um, I also want to give a special word of thanks to Wilkie Barn Gallagher of Rich. Um, thank you personally for giving my start in my career here. I was a young lawyer too long ago, um, but certainly my training at Wilkie Barn has given me the ability to launch my career. Uh, so a special thanks for that. Um, I thought it would be helpful today if I commented a little bit about the view from Washington, D.C. For those of you and those of us of our friends who are based in the region, I thought I might give you a little bit of a snippet of what people are thinking here inside the Beltway. And of course, I can't start without talking a little bit about political perceptions. So maybe I'm the only one on the panel here who's brave enough to talk politics. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the leadership in the GCC and how that's perceived here. Um, I think at first there was a particular nerve of nervousness, if you will, um, about both Saudi Arabia and the transition and Qatar. Because here you have, um, in the case certainly of the Deputy Crown Prince in Saudi Arabia, but of the Emir of Qatar, two young individuals and how that's going to play out. Um, I think that nervousness has settled down somewhat, but honestly it's still there amongst policymakers about where that is going. That nervousness somewhat extends to the other GCC countries in that, although there's been stable leadership, what comes next? Of course, especially after the 2011 Arab, whatever you want to call it, revolutions, Arab Spring, Arab uprisings that we've now seen has produced various results around the Arab world. Um, the next idea here that I want to talk about is the perceptions abroad, where you are, those of you based in the region, you know, we, the collective we in Washington here, um, and I've been here 30 years, so I suppose that makes me a Washingtonian, we are fully, fully aware that there is a great deal of nervousness regarding what happens this fall in 2016. <coughs> Who's elected president of the United States? I just got back from a week in Europe, and every time I opened my mouth, I couldn't, you know, stop without somebody asking me about what's going on. Who's going to be our next president? And, you know, the reality is we don't know. And there's no question all of you, I'm sure, are very well-schooled in this idea that politics does impact the economy. 
what our U.S. presidential candidates say here to American audiences, whether it's in a rally or a debate on foreign policy, will directly impact the investment opportunities in the region and how those, particularly the GCC country, but broadly in the Arab world, how those countries are perceived by regular Americans. So um, I think the, certainly our, our political environment right now is a very difficult one, it's a very rocky one, it's a very uncertain one. Um, and so that, that definitely has an impact, and it's going to have an impact on the economy. Um, the second area I'd like to talk about is one that's, of course, near and dear to my heart. After having served at the Department of Energy um, under President Bush, I was the Associate Deputy Energy Secretary. My portfolio was international energy. I continue to do a lot of work in that area. And there are two areas that uh, I specifically like to talk about with respect to the GCC countries. One of them is diversification. And Chris, you really laid out, um, I think, the menu correctly when you talked about the impact of those falling oil prices. So for years and years and years, particularly the U.S. and the Western countries, the consumer countries, as it were, has been telling GCC countries, particularly those OPEC members, diversify, diversify, diversify. And as Chris rightly points out, there really wasn't any uh, push or inspiration to diversify. Now, based upon oil prices, which I just checked are about $44, there is that input to diversify, and there's that, you know, there's that move to, to do so. Um, again, from a Washington perspective, I will tell you, there is a huge appetite to know how the oil prices are affecting the economies in these GCC countries. What are these dive in oil prices doing? How are the GCC economies diversifying? Uh, a particularly heightened interest, of course, in the $2 trillion public investment fund in Saudi Arabia, how the Aramco going public, how is that going to work? Um, so there is a large um, appetite here for knowledge and interest in that. Uh, because here in Washington, and certainly New York, to that extent, there are analysts, um, people who really collect information, disseminate information, not only to policymakers here in Washington, but also to the business community. Um, also, diversification in the sense of one of my favorite things to talk about is diversification within the energy sector. So for quite some time now, actually, many of these GCC countries have had the financial wherewithal to take risks in some of those areas of diversification in energy. For instance, um, in the rise of renewable energy, we have solar. Here in the US, you know, the solar industry has been somewhat difficult for investors because there just hasn't been that margin of return. Whereas in the GCC, there's been you know, the financial wherewithal to be able to invest in that. Of course, we've seen the very successful program that the United Arab Emirates launched with respect to nuclear power and building 14 new nuclear power plants. They did it the right way and that there's certainly a broad appetite. We know that very well here in Washington uh, for more of that particularly in light of the Iranian nuclear deal, of course, wind and hydropower, um, more so in North Africa, but certainly as an investor in the GCC area. And so that's not only about diversification, but it's also about sustainability. And sustainability is a buzzword not only in the energy industry, but broadly throughout the economy. 
So those are some of the things that um, I would say the policymakers are looking at here in Washington that are you know, causing a lot of the chatter, as they call it, the inside beltway chatter, about the perceptions of the GCC. So I thank you and I'd be happy to answer any questions during Q&A. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. John Duke Anthony, for bringing this all together, and Wilkie uh, Poran Gallagher for hosting us. My name is Chris Choksi. I'm the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Senior Vice President for the Middle East. I wonder at the outset, you know, the U.S. Chamber in many ways is the, is the kind of mother to many of our American Chambers of Commerce. We have over 100 overseas, and we have some of the finest in the Middle East represented here, particularly want to recognize all of the work that Dell Roosevelt has done uh, with NECAC and Chris Johnson has done with NECAC, but also with the, rep the, rep the American Chambers, the American Business Group of the Eastern Province of Saudi Arabia that Dell has put a lot of equity into developing, and Chris Johnson with the American Business Group in Riyadh. So just want to recognize them because they are on the front lines of American commerce overseas. The American Chambers are affiliates of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, but they are there living, breathing, and representing American business at its very best overseas. And you have some of them here in the room today, and they're an invaluable resource. We thank you and commend you for your work. Uh, what we have heard today is uh, our prior panelists have painted a very rich picture of the transformation, both political and economic, going on in the Middle East. And I'd like to pivot off that to raise a few questions as to where do we go from here. Clearly, as we've heard, we have tremendously rich markets. The demographics are all on the upward trend when it comes to economic prosperity. You have economic diversification, and that's noteworthy, and I do want to speak to that because for the first time you have seen whether it is the transformational plans outlined in Saudi Arabia, the work that the United Arab Emirates has done to transform its economy. The Chamber was honored to host uh, the Emir of Qatar last year. We were honored to have played a role in the, His Majesty's visit from Saudi Arabia and others. You've seen tremendous plans these countries diversifying their economies, and they've been very intelligent plans. The genesis has not necessarily been the drop in oil prices, because the plans began prior to the drop in oil prices. The genesis of the driver has been the change in demographics, and a realization that they've got to use the resources that have been gained from oil over many years to build broad diverse manufacturing and service-oriented economies that will serve the next 30 years of the economic transformation. And with that as a background, we have to step back and ask, what should American business do, and what should American policymakers, be they state, the White House, National Security Council, Commerce, do to be able to gear the U.S. to uh, more closely engage the countries in the region. I'd to lay some ideas down for this group to think through. Clearly on a business-to-business -business level, we do that. And that will continue and that will always be the bedrock of how we further our economic relationships. In the past, we had free trade agreements. And at one time, going back to Bob Zellick's time as USTR, the idea was that you would do free trade agreements and kind of link them up to the United States through a hub and spoke system. Consequently, we had free trade agreements with Bahrain, 
with uh, Jordan, we had free trade agreements with Oman and other countries out there. I think that the ground is now moved uh, from those. The U.S. government, and we commend it, has uh, had TIPA, trade and investment framework agreements, and they've been useful vehicles to bring the public sectors together. However, in my discussions from the region and with our own government, I think that those, again, uh, they can continue, but they are not the roadmap to the future. So then, what would be, because I think that public and private sector coming together does play a useful role. The United States government has certainly benefited from American business being a partner, and American business has certainly benefited from the U.S. government, and of course, our partners in the region, both the governments in the region and the private sectors in the region. And what I would like to say as we look to the future in terms of what this roadmap should be with, on a bilateral level with each of the countries in the region and on a multilateral framework, I have been pushing, and the U.S. chamber has been pushing, the idea that we should have structured economic dialogues, not necessarily led by the governments of the region, but when it comes to economic dialogues, they should be led by the private sector with the governments of the region, playing an incredibly important and robust uh, uh, role. So consequently, this January, we had our CEO and President Tom Donahue lead together with his counterparts in Saudi Arabia at the Council of Saudi Chambers a structured private-public sector dialogue. Uh, the, the, the highest levels of the Saudi government and of course Secretary Kerry joined us as well and that provides a roadmap in many ways for us to be able to move the relationship to a higher level but also in a level that is more keeping with the pace of business change both in the countries of the region and in the United States. With Qatar last year, we launched the first U.S.-Qatar strategic economic dialogue. And we were able to do that. Secretary Kerry was there, uh, Secretary Liu was there, and the foreign, the foreign minister and finance minister from Qatar. Again, I think that that was the first time that we advocated for that. We brought business together as a co-equal partner with the government of the region and the U.S. government. And I think there is one with the UAE that certainly needs to be become more private sector oriented and more robust, uh, and so on and so forth with the countries in the region. So what I'd like to say is we see tremendous economic transformation. There are opportunities for business-to-business -business engagement, and I think you've seen them from uh, the comments with regards to Saudi the rich body of Saudi students can, can be drawn, the work that our MCHAMs do in the region, the comments that Rhonda talked about in terms of a need for understanding the transformations of the region. I think we collectively also need to think through what we need to do as the United States in engaging the countries of the region. Because it's important to remember, when people ask me, what, who are the competitors from a Western viewpoint to American business in the region, it is not the Chinese, it is not the Indians, it is not the Japanese, I mean it is the Europeans. They do an extremely good job in engaging the region. I can't go to a city in the region where you see the mayor of London popping in and popping up. I mean, the man, Boris, is everywhere. Uh, you see uh, Chancellor Merkel playing an incredible role, whether it's in Egypt or in all other countries. You see the French playing a role. I mean, the EU supports them uh, uh, in, in many ways. And I think that as we look to the future, 
the public and private sectors need to come. So as you do your donor, I mean, it's important, I think, to take that message to the Hill, to all of them, that the American business, together with our counterparts in the region, should play a pivotal role in leading the bilateral relationship. The economic relationship today, I think, matters as much to the countries in the region, if not more, than the security and the political relationship. And I think that all of the leadership in the region would agree with that statement. It's, it's important, the economic and security relationship. But I think as the few, we look to the future, it would be the economic relationship that drives it. And I think that the U.S. as a whole needs to look at modern frameworks uh, as we look again to the next 10 years in terms of the economic growth in the region. Thank you, sir. I count. One of the good parts about speaking last is the smart people did all the heavy listening. So, uh, uh, my name is Mike Jones. I'm the U.S. representative for the Middle East Council of American Chambers of Commerce, and really my comments are short and sweet. We're arranging over 100-plus meetings uh, on Capitol Hill and around town. We've, uh, we'll be meeting with over half of the Senate uh, and key leadership in the House, uh, folks over at the Chamber, like our friend Kush, um, USTR, SBA, U.S. Department of Commerce, groups like National Association of Manufacturers, reaching out and making partnerships with folks like the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations. So we're around town. We're here for the week. All of our folks are, it's great to bring these folks in from the region because they can really provide a, a personal um, perspective on how things work out there and, and help to educate some of these members of Congress. And, uh, I'll just sort of leave it with um, one of our, our chairs of one of our chapters likes to say this. We do these trade and export events uh, periodically around the country in Senate district, or Senate states and in House districts uh, where we, uh, we bring in folks from the various agencies and the region to come in and talk to local businesses who would like to branch out and expand into the region. Um, as a resource to them. <clears throat> and one of our, our chairs, and most folks know uh, Dave from the Eastern Province, had a great, uh, a great line, Dr. Anthony, um, when you were talking about the lack of understanding about the region and the, the, the perception of danger and all these things that our, our American friends maybe don't really understand. Dave likes to say, you know, he got up to give his presentation at this uh, trade and export event, and he said, you know, one of the problems with living in Saudi Arabia is behind every tree, there's an Arab with a machine gun <laughs> waiting to gun you down. And the room went, boom. And he said, the good thing is there's no trees. <laughs> so uh, so I'll leave you with that little joke. And I thank you all for coming. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be of service to NECAC. Um, and I'm very happy to be here. So thank you all very much. <laughs> I wanted to um, wanted to also recognize Ambassador Patrick Theros and Robert Hager of Ankara. Check, 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 check. I wanted to also recognize Ambassador Patrick Theros, a former U.S. Ambassador to Qatar, and Robert Hager, the founding chairperson of the AmCham in Qatar. Saudi Arabia is uh, disproportionately 
represented uh, perhaps in the delegation and among the speakers here, uh, but there are other, five other uh, dynamic economies in the GCC uh, region. We have a number of questions, and um, I'll ask it the most general one first, and anyone can answer it. Just uh, raise a, a finger uh, for me, not the middle finger, please. <laughs> How will the drop in energy revenue uh, affect the business uh, sectors uh, and any specific examples that you might give uh, of joy or breakthrough or misery or setback or delay, whatever yeah, example you might have. Um, and how will the decreased price of oil impact U.S. exports to GCC countries? Anyway. Well, one consequence will be that there's less available surplus funds for subsidies. So you're going to see reductions in tariff, preferential tariffs on water and, uh, and uh, electricity, and you're going to see some uh, sharing of the pain among the, commons, uh, the common man that will create some political stresses. I think that's one obvious uh, consequence of the reduction in revenues. A more normal economy in which um, uh, pricing of uh, utilities is driven more by uh, free market forces and less by um, a traditional approach of gaining support by providing free stuff. Del. Uh, and then, uh, Mr. Well, go ahead, Chris, after you. No, after you. Uh, so, directly to re related to what Chris, Chris just mentioned, on the other side of the fence is the, the infrastructure, the equipment um, that they currently have is going to become that much more dear to them. So the concept of maintenance deferred as a lifestyle is going to go away, where they have to start really taking care of what they have. So if you are in a service business, or if you have products or technologies that can further and lengthen the life of existing infrastructure or fix uh, failing infrastructure uh, and to achieve longer life, that is something that there is tremendous opportunity in. Um, uh, and then the other, the other uh, comment real quick would be that the concept of sustainability Coming from a background of energy conservation and load management, I can tell you that 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 when I even five years ago you couldn't have a conversation with Saudi Electric or the Kingdom of Bahrain about implementing uh, you know energy conservation uh, load reduction programs or um, you know lighting programs and things of that nature just weren't interested. Now. They are highly interested, and everyone's putting together committees to study what type of uh, sustainability projects can be quickly implemented to gather the lowest hanging fruit to, so they can end up, at the end of the day, using less of their own product to power their nations. There's an economic theory called the curse of oil that says that, ironically, uh, to have um, a huge uh, margin and surplus on the export of primary products can be a curse rather than a blessing in the sense that if the government depends for its revenues 
on, um, on the accident of, uh, of, of valuable resources rather than taxation that uh, uh, eliminates the accountability that comes from a government that relies on taxation for its revenues. And so we are shifting to um, a program that will introduce more taxes. We know for certain that there will be a VAT tax of 5% introduced in 2018 throughout the GCC. Well, when you begin to um, put these burdens on your people in exchange for providing a service, there's a sense of ownership and accountability that doesn't exist if you're not taxing them that could create a discipline. And this goes to the uh, theme that I presented earlier, that there is a renegotiation of the social contract in which the individual people will bear a bigger piece of the burden of maintaining the common uh, benefits and infrastructure to keep the country going. And I think that will provide a um, a, a healthy discipline and a sense uh, that the government is the servant of the people and not the other way. And, and just to tag up, I'll have you know that we now, living over there, have to, instead of paying 47 cents a gallon for gasoline, have to pay almost a dollar. <laughs> Horrible. That's tragic. It is. <laughs> We're moving. Protests and strikes. If I may yes, add just to that, I mean, short term there is economic transition going on. But the biggest trading and investment partners in the United States are broad, big, diversified economies. And that's where the region is moving towards. So the upside is that you would have private sector-led, robust, diverse economies. And that's where we would want the types of countries we want to do trade and investment to be in. And that's where the region is heading towards. Rhonda. Just to follow up on that, there's no question over the past 10 years the U.S. has become an oil-producing country in the sense of domestic production. That has certainly changed a lot. Its impact and reverberations have been felt worldwide. Uh, when the U.S. started to produce, particularly through fracking, uh, the questions I would get is, Rhonda, is it true, is it true, is it true? Is the U.S. really doing this? Oh, yeah, it's definitely true. And then flash forward to where we are now. There's no question, typical supply and demand issues when a market is oversupplied like it is right now with petroleum, you're going to have that drop in prices. And that's partly in due, due to U.S. Uh, oil oil production here domestically. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, from uh, the League of Arab States. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Anthony. Uh, good morning, all of you, and uh, I would like to thank you very much for inviting me for the, this uh, nice seminar. It's a good issue, very important one. Uh, the relation, the current relation between Arab uh, UCC and, uh, and America. Uh, as you said, I'm representing uh, 22 countries, not only Saudi Arabia. I come from Saudi Arabia. I have an honor to be a Saudi uh, citizen, but uh, I'm still representing the 22 countries. Uh, as you know, in our office, we only sometimes we focusing on on the political issues rather than than the economic. But now we are working on the economic issues uh, more strongly than than ever. Uh, the thing is, um, I, I I gather or I just noticed that most of the talkings about Saudi, not not about the other UCC countries, which is good. I'm still Saudi. I'm very pleased to hear that. Yeah, yeah. I would like to thank Nana for for her. Um, statement and introducing um, what is her work. The center is very important and it's very important for our Saudi students to, to get the benefit and the train here in the, in the, in the, 
uh, United States and, and American firms. And uh, maybe the Arab League would like to say, because we have some time to discuss what is the prospect of this uh, issue. Uh, Dr. Mr. Roosevelt, I, you work at the Reza family's businesses. I know this family is a very important one. I um, used to be one of the, uh, not employee, but I, I work with, with, with the Reza family uh, sometimes ago. That is very important one. I'm very and happy to hear what you said about the Saudi businesses and the prospect of the Saudi businesses and what is your perception about the Saudi employees. Uh, Randa touched very important issues. It's about the, the, the understanding what will happen next year when the new president will be elected. We don't know. After what we heard about the hatering statement from the, some of the, I don't want to name the name of the candidates, but everybody knows about it. So I met one, I was in Saudi Arabia, I came to the, two days ago, and I sat with some businesses, uh, people in Saudi Arabia, and they're still concerned and unhappy about what has been said about, about Muslim and none um, allowed Muslim people to enter the United States. So this is very important one, and this is my impact. The businesses, uh, I don't know how in what way, but, but still, it's still very important things to, to, to understand and the address. Mr. Kush, you represent Chamber of Commerce. We have uh, some of us here. Not 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 a misunderstanding, but we need to sit with the Chamber of Commerce to get some information. If you want, if you want to grow the business or, or improve the, the the relation between American and the GCC countries of business firm, we would like to sit with you to discuss some issues very important because the data is not clear to us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Uh, would you like to? say anything because of uh, your role as the president of the Qatar U.S. Business Council, former U.S. ambassador to Qatar. And is Robert Hager still here? Yes. Uh, thank you so much. And you as well, please. Uh, John, thank you so much. I appreciate very much what you, uh, you all are doing today. I think frequently we do not understand the importance of the GCC market to the American economy. I would like to second the comment uh, that Randa made about the importance of change. Uh, granted, Saudi Arabia and Qatar probably changed more dramatically in terms of generation than any of the other countries of the region, but that is a something that we still have to work through. There has been a huge change. These are people uh, who are now in charge, who've grown up in uh, a totally separate uh, world, a world in, uh, in which they do not remember pre-oil, a world in which uh, many of them do not remember 1967. Uh, so it is a completely new tra uh, transformation that has happened. and. Uh, I'm still trying to figure it out for Qatar, and I think we're all trying to figure it out for the region. Thank you very much. Robert Hager, do you want to uh, add to that? Oh, I, Please. I, I concur with uh, Patrick's comments. Uh, Qatar, as you may know, I mean, it is amazing the generational shift. Uh, the young faces you see, uh, not only uh, with His Highness, but in the ministries, is amazing. And, uh, and that's uh, both uh, 
Uh, people say it's there's uncertainty, but I think there's a lot of optimism in seeing the youth uh, and the next generation in a, in a small emirate. Uh, again, um, uh, the different there are obviously many differences between the Gulf countries, uh, and uh, and that uh, is. Uh, uh, but at the same time, there is a, a general need uh, for more integration. And I think there are ambitious projects that we hope continue, uh, like the high-speed rail network to connect all Gulf countries. Uh, we're hopeful that that will happen. Uh, and indeed, Qatar is looking forward to the hosting of the 2022, uh, which will be the first World Cup uh, in an Arab country. And, and really, an event of this size in the Middle East is, uh, is unprecedented. And uh, again, we as a chamber are, are hoping that American businesses uh, can take advantage of that. And as some of the panel have rightly said, you know, our competitors are not the competitors you hear the political candidates talking about. We don't really worry about the Chinese and Qatar, but we do worry a lot about the French and the British and even small countries like Australia. And these are all uh, uh, issues that, uh, that you brought up. And, uh, and uh, again, it's, we're grateful to, uh, to your hospitality here. And we invite you to come to Doha. And maybe we can exchange the hospitality uh, uh, that you've, uh, you've uh, shown us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Robert. Uh, related to uh, Carter, and unbeknownst to uh, most of you, is that the National Council has uh, had for some time uh, the proposal project vision dream of having an Arab cultural institute right smack in the middle of the nation's capital here. Uh, Del Roosevelt made uh, the remark that uh, in the opening part of a relationship uh, with one's Arab uh, counterpart, uh, if one does not have an understanding an awareness and acknowledgement and appreciation of Arab culture and what it has contributed to world civilizations, including um, Western culture and civilization, and the benefits from the United States. Um, this has been coming for a long time, and the one country that is the most supportive of it now is Carter uh, at the very uh, highest ranks of that government's decision-making body. Uh, Washington, as you know, is a city with a very limited history. It's not like Rome, Athens, Greece, and Paris. Uh, it's a city of monuments and museums. And it's a horizontal or a lateral city in terms of space design and architecture. We believe that every member of Congress would come to that institute at least once out of curiosity. So too with our chiefs of staff, defense and foreign policy, advisors and legislative and communications affairs directors, as would every member of a professional association or lobby group in Washington and the media, as well as the 10 to 20 million tourists that, who come to Washington every year. Uh, because of the atmosphere, there will be no U.S. government monetary support for it. We've already ascertained that. All will be moral and rhetorical support. So the overwhelming uh, support will have to come 
from the Arab governments themselves and the American and Arab private sector, all of whom would stand to benefit from this. It would have a conference center, research facilities, the national days of all the Arab countries could be held there and avoid having to pay expensive costs to have them in one of the finer hotels. And when people would come to those national days, they would linger out of curiosity to see the museum and cultural uh, artifacts and exhibitions. Just wanted to give you a heads up on this and to ask that you try to be supportive as much as you can through your private sector partners. And we have some fantastic additional questions here. Um, and I will uh, ask all of them and then come back. So I'll ask them all so that the audience and the panel can have the adrenaline flowing uh, in preparation for their answers. Outside of the realm of oil, how else does U.S. GCC economic cooperation function? Asking for specifics here. And what are uh, the other areas of higher revenue? These kinds of questions are being asked for those who don't know. And um, the answers will provide the knowledge. Uh, the reintroduction of the Iranian oil and gas into the global market after the implementation of the undertakings associated with the nuclear agreement uh, undeniably will have great effects uh, on trade in the region. How do you think the GCC countries will counter or accommodate uh, with this obviously certain new trend? Uh, how do the dominating role of sovereign wealth funds in GCC countries affect economic relations with the United States? How do higher U.S. exports create jobs in the United States? And how do they reduce unemployment? For nearly 40 years, there have been uh, correlations between $1 billion of U.S. exports to the GCC region translate into a wide number of, of thousands of jobs in the United States. But uh, we would benefit from some specifics there because the answer is one of benefit and reward. But most Americans are completely unaware of those benefits and rewards. What additional steps can the United States government take to promote U.S. company and businesses doing business in the GCC over and beyond uh, what has been mentioned, if any additional steps? Uh, have you noticed or can you quantify the effects of the tax on U.S. expatriates in the region? We are, I believe, the only major country that does tax its employees abroad. And this puts us at a competitive disadvantage to other countries that, let's say, have a more creative marketing approach. Uh, we're also hampered by the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and the Anti-Arab Boycott Legislation. Uh, these three acts, the last one, the tax one being the amendment to the Tax Reform Act of 1978 
heavily uh, disadvantaged America. But how much and how, if at all, can we get around that uh, obstacle that hinders and hampers uh, chances for higher profitability? Uh, do the GCC states, in your view, view Iran's nuclear agreement more of a political threat or an opportunity for trade? There's great questions here. Uh, U.S. tax policies on workers and uh, earned income seem to put America at a disadvantage compared to the other industrial countries. Can you comment? That's a different phraseology for the earlier question on that. How important is it for U.S. standards, weights, and measures and specifications to be included in tenders? And if not, what is the impact on U.S. standards? As noted by Chris Johnson, commercial relations are exceptionally important to build lasting relations in the Middle East. What, if anything, can be done to combat negative perceptions of the United States and contradictory positions in the realm of human rights policies in the region? Should the U.S. act more like China in the Middle East, in other words, have business as America's first priority. I'll go back now to the one about the impact of uh, U.S. tax policies, laws, and regulations on uh, yourselves, Americans working abroad. What is the impact? How is it accommodated? Anybody? Certainly. Um, the the exemption has certainly helped to make there are two things here. There's the corporate tax and the individual tax. And clearly, uh, we are pricing ourselves out of the market unless if you're double taxing either individuals or companies. And that's something uh, where you know the United States is unique that we tax regardless of where uh, you live. And consequently, you've seen the impact in terms of individuals, uh, Americans, uh, not being competitively priced because they've got to pay taxes uh, in two jurisdictions. So there continues to be that issue there. In terms of you know, the corporate tax issue, there's clearly a need for corporate tax reform in the United States. With the absence of that, again, American companies are at a competitive disadvantage to uh, companies from other countries, and um, that creates a lot of other issues from that. Maybe Ambassador Kalpa would like to comment on that, because um, this legislation was in force when you were Ambassador to Saudi Arabia, or Pat Theros comment on it. Uh, with regard to the pain or the punishment or the penalty that was perceived to uh, accrue uh, by adhering to those uh, regulations. Well, let me, let me just say that, uh, yes, when I was there, some of this, this legislation came into effect. Uh, it, it, it was. It was indeed uh, a, a problem for the, the American business community out there, uh, but we had other problems too, <laughs> and, and one was that uh, when I was there, the price of oil was really down, 
really down. It went down below ten dollars per barrel at one point. What's that? In the eighties. That's right. That's right, Mr. Vaster. And uh, we, I even had the visit of then Vice President George H. W. Bush, who came out primarily, primarily to urge your government uh, to uh, to help to raise the price of oil. Uh, it's sort of like Fusachon. We see something like like this today, press. But anyway, uh, it was a problem. But uh, perhaps, Pat, uh, your your experience is more recent. Pat uh, Taylor. Uh, most of us who've been in the area uh, have seen the direct effects hiring non-U.S. citizens uh, to replace American citizens. A lot of companies, the inability of U.S. citizens to participate as management in companies abroad. Uh, what uh, and then the knock-on effects? If you uh, if you replace an American citizen with an Englishman, for example, who's the head of a company, he may still serve that company loyally, but the ancillary effects. He's going to buy British cars rather than American. Is going to buy British furniture rather than American furniture. Uh, the frustrating part of all this is we don't seem to have any traction in Congress. And I would am really open to ideas as to how we could get some traction in Congress to understand just the damage being done. You know, these laws were written to catch a thousand tax sheets, and they're affecting the livelihoods of a million people. <clears throat> Can I comment on this? I think the question goes to a deeper issue about um, our view of the value of our international trade and investment opportunity. And you do see that in the administration there was this recognition when they issued the 2010 challenge to double exports in five years, recognizing that 95% of our potential customers are outside our boundaries. But I agree with Ambassador Donis. Congress doesn't seem to understand that we, just like in the domestic scene, we have to compete just as states have to compete with each other to lo convince companies to locate headquarters and factories within their borders. We also have to be competitive with trends in the bigger global economy. And if Ireland reduces its taxes to 12% and Singapore even further, and uh, um, you know we can't be blind to this and view us uh, view ourselves as operating uh, in isolation from the big uh, global economy to which we committed to gradually liberalize our relationship in the post-war regime that was developed with the World Bank and the uh, IMF back following uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the peace from World War II. And so there is not a great recognition in Congress of the uh, of the growth potential and the sort of growth paradigm that comes from getting competitive at the national level in our regulatory policies vis-a-vis -vis our major competitors overseas. And I think, you know, at a time when uh, we're very concerned about unemployment and we see in the presidential campaign there's great emphasis on the pain of the middle class. Well, the solution is to get competitive and let our companies become profitable and start generating those high-value jobs that come from exports that we're losing out on right now. Can I give one historical perspective? Uh, yes, but Rhonda had a hand up Yeah, just uh, um, to answer two of the questions on Iran, um, as many of you know, the GCC is not monolithic. So Oman's policy towards Iran differs from Bahrain's, differs from the UAE, Saudi, Kuwait, you know, Papa. Um, so, with respect to that, there's no question Iranian oil and gas is coming back on the market at an interesting time. No question U.S. isn't going to play in that game for a very long time. Others are, particularly in Europe. 
Um, but with respect to the GCC, I would dare speak for any of their government representatives. I think their policies on trade may be different from their political views on the situation. General? Uh, it, just, just to give a, a quick historical perspective to answer speak, that question. Speaking to the microphone. Uh, the, uh, a quick historical real-time uh, answer would be, with respect to the foreign income exclusion, which is what we're talking about, to help make Americans more competitive overseas. Uh, under the Jimmy Carter administration, President Carter said, you know what, I want that money back. At that time, it was in the mid-three billions that would be added back to back to the you know the central pot. So he eliminated the FEIE. Instead of that money coming back, what happened was is that Americans started coming back to the United States in droves, unemployed, asking, "What are we going to do now?" That was the last quarter, second to the last, second thing, third and fourth quarter of that year. The first and second quarter of the following year. There was such a dramatic drop in U.S. exports abroad that President Carter himself, again, by executive order, reinstated FEID and at a higher level. So we've tried it before, we've eliminated it before, and we've failed before. And so this is something that I think that is, is absolutely necessary to continue it. Um, and there was one other quick question. How did uh, higher exports provide new U.S. jobs? Mm -hmm. Uh, that, I think, is a, is a great question, uh, because simply to give you an idea of how it works in real time, and I don't know about any of the other MECAC um, members here and how they operate, but the Alireza family, our mode of doing business is, is that if you have a product, Richard, that we, that we determined will be a big seller in the GCC, because we don't look just at Saudi Arabia, we look at GCC-wide. We come and say, you know what, we want to sell your product with you, okay? So let's create a deal. We don't want to just sell your product. We want to ultimately set up the light manufacturing or assembly operation in the GCC or in Saudi Arabia, but we know we've got to prove it first. The business drives the effort. Eventually, we prove to you that we're going to sell a lot of these pens. The way that we do it is we say, you know, uh, Rick, we don't know how you make these pens, and we don't care how you make these pens. What we do is we build you the facility to assemble and manufacture these pens, and you bring your people in and operate this organization, okay? And we have a joint venture. What does that mean to American jobs? That means that you've got to send a group of people to Jeddah or to, to someplace in the GCC to operate this factory, and then you've got to backfill it with new U.S. jobs. So you're creating new jobs at home, you're expanding your organization, which is very difficult to do, that you might not be able to do here in the United States of America, abroad, and that's how we create new jobs and new opportunities for American companies. Okay. I have uh, two questions for uh, Ms. Al-Jabeer. <clears throat> um, she more or less covered it, I think, in her remarks, but perhaps something uh, in greater specificity or detail. How can my company connect with the Center for Career Development? Uh, second question, um, one should ponder the announcement of new regulations just issued by the Department of Homeland Security that allegedly allows students, foreign students, to remain in the United States up to three years and to be employed, trained, and work as interns. You comment on those or answer those? 
through a response to those two. Okay, with regard to, first of all, um, to comment on the, um, my colleagues about uh, opportunities. There are a lot of opportunities in Saudi Arabia, and um, to fill those opportunities, you need Saudi uh, employees, and um, we are here to help you fill those positions. Just a little plug for um, center. Mm -hmm. um, how can you connect with us? Um, I've handed out a sheet that has um, provides the services that we provide. It also provides contact information. You can, can contact me directly um, or um, at nalgebear at sacrum.org, or you can contact us, contact us at ccd at sacrum.org, um, and just um, let us know that you're interested, and we'll take it from there. We can arrange, if you're local, we can arrange for a face-to-face -face meeting, or we can do it by um, a call, and then we can go through uh, the steps of what we can, the service that we can provide that best meets your needs. Um, the, the ones that are listed on the um, sheet, as I mentioned before, most of them are for free. The only thing is the technical cost of running a webinar where you can introduce your company to our students. Been, those who have tried, it's been very popular, uh, and the, uh, the feedback has been very good. Um, and um, the services are, so basically they're free, and you can take advantage of the service at this time, and you can take advantage of them as much as you want. Another question that was asked about um, what is called the OPT, Optional Practical Training. The US, US um, government has a very nice system which allows F1 students who have completed about an F1 year of academic uh, education um, that they can apply for OPT that allows them to work while they're on their student status uh, in the United States. So they can work or do an internship during their um, for, uh, education or after they graduate. If you are, um, for most students, it's one, 12 months. If you're a STEM student, um, science, technology, engineering, and math. It used to be an additional 17 months, but recently, um, last month, uh, or in February, I believe, um, the government extended it to 24 months, um, effective in May, meaning that a student in the STEM fields, um, if he or she has a contract, can work um, 12 months plus another 24 months, so that's basically three years. One of the complaints that uh, a lot of students have is that American companies don't hire students because of the short-term training opportunities. Now with the three-year extension, that would make it more um, attractive to American companies to train those students here um, and then hopefully um, continue the relationship in Saudi Arabia. And if, again, if the relationship doesn't work out here for whatever reasons, maybe the, there wasn't a good match, um, the students, um, the company can still uh, retain the relationship when the student goes back to Saudi Arabia by uh, taking advantage of him, of him or her uh, when they need networking, when they need um, maybe uh, assistance in uh, finding a subcontractor or when they want to do a joint venture. You know, the person, the Saudi person, does know the system. We have a way of maneuvering through the system, um, uh, whether it's the legal, the economic system, the social system, so they'll be able to help you. So I, I, I encourage you uh, to take advantage of our students that are here, to train them, to get to know them, to take advantage of the information, the rich information that they have, and you know to learn about um, our culture, um, which um, again is is not what you see on TV or hear read in the media. 
um, so that when you do decide to go, take advantage of the opportunities that were mentioned here with the economy undergoing so many changes that you have somebody there to help you um, with um, you know entering the Saudi market. Mm -hmm. um, following on <coughs> this aspect of the um, uh, restrictive uh, regulations on the um, amendment to the Tax Reform Act that Jill addressed and so did uh, Chris Johnson. Um, if one steps back and tries to be clinical, detached, and objective here, uh, all three of those um, constraining laws that are still on the book were urged uh, not by friends of the Arab world or the Islamic world, uh, but those who um, view Arabs and Muslims in an adversarial uh, context. And that makes it the more easy, difficult for members of Congress to walk back because the same uh, groups and forces and factors that push for those laws are the ones who uh, shudder at the idea of a level playing field between the United States and its Arab partners, uh, that this would be disadvantage, disadvantageous to some other uh, countries and their representatives who um, do not want to see a close, intimate, long-term strategic Arab-U.S. relationship. Because there are 22 Arab countries, only one Iran, only one Turkey, only one Israel, only one Pakistan, only on Cyprus, etc. Uh, so that is even more of a factor now than it was then. So let's not underestimate what the challenge is. Now, President Obama is scheduled to visit Saudi Arabia on April the 21st, and we would invite any thoughts. And I'm tempted to ask uh, Herman Franson in the audience uh, if he would comment on the oil-related questions. I know of no one in the audience who's more uh, professional and long-term in his analysis of these phenomena than Dr. Frenson. But I said I'm tempted to ask him. So if he uh, doesn't want to respond, I will respect that. Yes, Herman. An interesting time for that visit because of the Doha meeting of uh, OPEC and a few non-OPEC countries. The perception is that it will help that a uh, limit on the volumes those countries will produce and help rebalance the market. The rebalancing is already underway uh, in part because of what Rwanda was talking about, the U.S. Uh, oil production is expected to come down by some 700 million barrels a day, 700,000 barrels a day um, over this year, and perhaps uh, another five, six hundred thousand next year as a result of the lower prices, and that will help in the rebalancing of the market. So when it starts rebalancing the market, the price is likely to go up somewhat, and again further next year, um, that will help. Uh, but uh, I think a crucial question that one can ask is the 
as the U.S. has become somewhat less dependent on imported oil, this year and next year it will be importing more. And it will depend on how oil prices develop, whether it is in the longer term U.S. going to be as dependent as it is now, or will it be reduced again when prices rise. Uh, but whatever happens, uh, the region still has most of the world's oil reserves. Our European allies are very much dependent on it, the Asian allies even more. So there is no question about U.S. interest not being at stake in the region. And I think they hope that the president will, uh, will uh, create a situation there that will lead to a, uh, a better understanding of our two interests. Okay. We have five more minutes, and um, uh, there are two that are sort of personal questions, and I would encourage the individuals who ask them to come up afterwards and just put the question directly uh, to the person you want to respond. And Adele is one of them uh, about uh, realistic uh, uh, business and investment opportunities related to Expo 2020 in Dubai. And another person says that they were close to closing on cardiovascular projects in two GCC countries, but they have stalled and might he uh, advise on how to proceed or accommodate uh, this. Um, U.S. Qatar Economic Cooperation and Investment expected to grow in light of the FIFA World Cup 2022, and if so, how and in what ways? Robert Hager or Matt Theros, people on Robert? Yeah, we, we already have uh, strong uh, U.S. Of course, we can't ignore um, the, uh, the darker side. 
that's happened in the sense that uh, and Cutter uh, uh, has been in the spotlight about uh, labor. And, uh, and I think the story that you don't hear as much is what are the countries doing to address that. And the 2022 people have really been in the forefront to try to push the country's laws to uh, make conditions better for workers, uh, to provide assurances of payment for workers. And U.S. companies are great role models in this. Um, you hear a lot about projects in Qatar uh, that the media is focusing on where things have gone wrong. Uh, you don't necessarily hear where things have gone right. Um, the airport project, a uh, $10 billion project, uh, has an incredible safety record. Uh, for over 10 years. Uh, you don't hear that story. And that's because also U.S. companies have been involved in projects like that. So we're hoping that the U.S. companies, which have a gold standard as it applies to labor, uh, get more of that uh, uh, exposure. Uh, but again, it's, um, I think 2022 has opportunities, but our competitors are there. I hope that answers. Okay, thank you, Robert. Um, on this uh, foreign labor uh, issue, it's not uh, peculiar to Qatar. It's uh, pretty much universal throughout all six GCC countries. It's just that Qatar is the uh, focus of the day. Um, and the delegations that the National Council has taken to the region, and there are more than 300, usually 12 in each delegation, uh, the two most vexing issues that take the Americans longer and more difficulty in the process of getting their minds around to understand, to analyze, to assess, and to be empathetic on the foreign labor issue and the position and role of women. These two uh, need a lot of work on the part of those of us who are in the educational business. Uh, there are unending stories of good news, but they don't sell. And it's the negative aspect that seems to sell, and we seem to want it dished out to us for whatever uh, human frailties are on display from our side. The last question is um, twofold. Uh, what efforts are the GCC nations making in terms of sustainable non-fossil fuel energy policies? And why is it that of the 20 countries that have free trade agreements with the United States, two are GCC countries, Bahrain and Oman? And how might the remaining GCC states use Bahrain and Oman as models to achieve their own free trade agreements with the United States. Anyone? I'll start. The United Arab Emirates um, wanted to have one and was exploring the possibilities of having one. And, it, and we and they were pretty much on a roll and a run uh, towards closure. But then the media got hold of an issue about something called Dubai Ports World. 
which uh, manages, administers uh, the logistics and the operational dynamics of more than a dozen ports around the world. And the thought that <clears throat> such a um, company and people who would be Arabs and Muslims would be involved in the United States uh, with their ports, potentially, uh, and the perceived security risk that that would entail derailed that um, process. Uh, we were en route to something that would have been quite reciprocally rewarding and mutually beneficial, um, but it stopped dead in its tracks. And I'm not aware of another coming as close as that one. But Chris Johnson, I'd like I believe, to comment. I believe that one of the impediments that arises is that under the rules for FDAs today, there is a provision for national treatment for uh, member countries uh, in um, uh, access to uh, development of natural resources. And so I think that's a condition that creates a roadblock. And so I think the perception within the government is that that and other, um, and Kush mentioned also that FTAs may not be the way forward. I think that's part of the reason. And I think that there are alternatives that are more uh, productive. And one of them is the economic dialogue. I think. There is an economic dialogue with Qatar, I think, and uh, there is one with Tunisia, I think possibly with Morocco as well. Um, the problem there is that uh, under that um, uh, mechanism, the uh, request should come from the counterpart country, not from the U.S., so there would have to be a, a recognition of a need for an economic dialogue. But I think that's probably the best uh, shot for uh, nurturing and developing the relationship that I know of right now. I think you're probably right that the FDAs are maybe not the way to go. And uh, for insight on that, the European Union started negotiations with the GCC in 1987. This is why there's a GCC office in Brussels, but none here in the United States. And each year, the ministers of finance, industry, economics, and planning from the EU would meet with their counterparts in the GCC. And they were rolling along, although uh, the Netherlands and Germany were resistant because if uh, petrochemicals came from the GCC into the EU, there would be no way that they could compete on price. Uh, so they were opposed to it from that perspective. But it came to an end in, 19, in 2008. I remember being at the GCC annual ministerial and heads of state summit uh, when that was announced because the EU crossed the so-called red line. It started to interfere, intrude into what the GCC countries regard as their sovereign domain and independence. And the EU started raising human rights issues, including the foreign labor uh, uh, issue. And so the GCC stopped it, saying, we are not interfering in Europe's domestic affairs, even though Europeans are hardly bereft of blemish, devoid of defect, or free from flaw. But we've restrained ourselves. The EU has not, therefore it's off. I think something similar would happen perhaps quicker and even more vociferously uh, from the United States side, raising those very same issues, and probably additional ones. We've had a 
a great cerebral massage here. And I think all of us believe the more learned than when we came. Please join me in thanking Andrew.